from Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This episode may not be suitable for children and contains references to violence and suicide. When Jen Carson was nine years old, her mother told her that her father had been arrested for hurting people. In 1984, serial killers Michael Bear Carson and his second wife, Susan Carson, were suspects in several murder cases and later convicted in the homicides of Karen Barnes, Clark Stevens, and Charles Helliar. For years, Jen felt like she had to prove to everybody around her that she would not end up anything like her father. In fact, her life of purpose, meaning, and compassion would lead her to a career as a mental health advocate and public speaker. And since she knows what it's like to live in a very dark place for a very long time, she now runs the Inland Southern California Crisis Helpline. But let's go back to the beginning. What are her memories of early childhood like? I was uh, the suicidal child of a homicidal father. And that um, my mother and I resided in hiding for five years from my violent father and stepmother. And at the end of those five years, my father and stepmother were suspects in 12 homicides and uh, confessed to uh, three in California in order to be incarcerated in California. And, you know, I survived several decades of suicidal thoughts and several days of life-threatening suicidal behaviors. And that my recovery uh, took decades and continues, but I now proudly live in recovery, model recovery, and I work in suicide prevention. Thank you for that. I'm glad that you survived and continue to. Your parents divorced when you were five. What are some early, early memories of your dad? My mother and father met in um, college in Iowa. They were engaged in the counterculture movement. They were actually at the Chicago 7 trial, and they were at the riot at Grant Park during the Sly and the Family Stone concert. They just were constantly kind of in the mix of things. Um, engaged in uh, anti-war protest and and so on. They then joined a teacher corps to work in rural South Carolina right after desegregation when most of the teachers quit. They uh, Most of the white teachers quit. They would not serve with black students. And so they went and they were working there. So kind of social justice oriented and then moved to Arizona to work in Native American education, similar kind of project. And around that time, uh, my father's drug use went from recreational to, you know, having a substance use disorder. And my mother then began to see violence and some glimpses of real lack of conscience, uh, you know, cruelty and kind of some sadistic behaviors. My mother left my father. My early memories of my father are very, very uh, positive. He was a stay-at-home father. And now looking at it through a adult lens, and then perhaps through my professional lens, you know, I have a doctorate in social work. I see that due to his narcissism, he very much saw me as an extension of himself. And so when he was so kind to me in my early years, it definitely seemed to be a little bit um, related to his obsession with self. 
your father remarried. Uh, you've said that your first visit to your father and stepmother's house is etched in your memory. What happened? When I went to that home for the first time, the door opened and it was night and um, there was no lighting and the entire apartment had no furniture except for a waterbed. So I, I slept on the floor in the dark and my memory is of my father and stepmother being naked on this waterbed and being, you know, passed out from, you know, drugs and me attempting to uh, find food in the in the kitchen, crawling into drawers to get to the, the counter and trying to search for food, being hungry, trying to escape the house, trying to figure out how to work the locks on the doors to get out and dialing zero on a rotary phone and asking the operator for mommy. How old were you? Um, I was a preschooler. I would have been four. And so it's very much, there's like flashes of memories. You know, I have glimpses of memories of my stepmother pushing me underwater in a bathtub. And then my last uh, visit there, I came home with an open wound on my back. It looked like a, a werewolf had gotten to me. There were five open scratch wounds from jagged fingernails on my back from where my um, stepmother had assaulted me after I asked for a back rub. So your mom decides to move with you across the country and you were on the road for the next four years. What, when you look back at that time, do you remember? Initially, a, f a friend, a mutual friend of my mother and father's who, you know, was very concerned about his new then girlfriend, later wife, warned my mother that she thought they were going to take me out of the country. And so there's this very melodramatic incident where my mom, um, she was teaching and working in a Native American reservation outside of Tucson at the time. And she took me to a local Catholic church and left me with um, several nuns. And when my father and stepmother left, um, we actually didn't go across the country. What my mom chose to do is my father and mother had had a running joke during the decade of their relationship, which is how much they hated Southern California. So she actually came to Southern California, although I was often sent to stay with random relatives around the country. So I think by age five, I'd lived in like six states. And then um, by the end of elementary school, I think I'd been at like seven elementary schools or something. I don't know. In 1983, your father was arrested for killing at least three people. How old were you when this happened? Let's go back to 1982 when the Secret Service shows up at our door. So 1982, the Secret Service uh, bangs on the door. I open the door. It's literally men in black. And How old are you? my mom sends me to my room. I'm then seven. She sends me to my room and she has a meeting with them. And they do tell her, uh, your ex-husband is, is wanted for murder and he's on the run. And he's let, he left behind um, a substantial threat to then Governor Jerry Brown, and then President Ronald Reagan. And um, they stated that they believed that he'd already killed several people 
it wasn't just a threat. Uh, he had actually stalked several of those politicians with written plans and so on. So when did you find out that your father had killed at least three people? What was that conversation? By the time they get to the arraignment, it appears that my father and stepmother want to turn the trial into a zoo, like just a circus. My father, during the trial, jumped up on a table and yelled, death to the queen. Um, My stepmother's jumping on furniture saying, what is my crime? To be beautiful, to be an artist. Um, They're making out on the stand. So they're turning it into a circus for attention. And the defense they were utilizing was called psychic self-defense. And they were also, um, so it was around the same time of the trink. Twinkie defense, sugar made me do it. So it looked like it was about to kind of blow up in the press and I would find out from a child at school's parent or whatever. So she is feels that she's like really running against the clock that she will have no control in the situation. The message will be. And so something happens with the press that gets her to say, okay, today's the day. And so um, she actually meets me at school and she wanted to tell me not at school and not at home. So I didn't identify those places with this memory. So we walk halfway between school and home and kind of sit on a curb. And she says, do you remember I told you that daddy was very sick? He was with this really bad person he got much more sick. She got much more awful. And she said they hurt a bunch of people and they now need to be at jail um, so that everyone's safe. And I said, are the hurt people dead? And she said, yes. And I said, and do the dead people have sad mommies? And she says, yes. And we're just sitting on this curb crying for like an hour. You've said by nine years old, I viewed every adult as a potential killer. The whole world terrified me. I also feared that I would grow up and kill people. Yeah, that quote has been taken so out of context by the press. No, 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 no. Let me share. So you just said exactly what I said, which I think is, is heartfelt in my experience. So I've said in the past that, you know, at nine, you know, if the hands that change your diapers kill people, anyone's capable of murder, right? And if this guy that brushed your hair and made you food and changed your diapers is going to kill people, maybe you're going to kill people, right? So you said exactly what I said. And in the press, um, it's been written in and present tense that like the British press has stolen my baby pictures. They've done all these awful things to me. One of the things they've done is right. Daughter of serial killer fears she'll kill people. Um, so I appreciate you stating, you know, my whole sentiment, which is, you know, at nine, you cannot conceive these things. You just can't. We were living the town we lived in at the time when this occurred, the arrest occurred was uh, San Juan Capistrano. And it's a it's a town in in Southern California where one of the historic colonial missions is located, one of the Spanish colonial missions. 
And so one of the things um, located in this kind of historic town we were staying in was an outdoor colonial jail. And I had passed that on the way to school or, you know, whatever, this outdoor uh, holding jail. And so when my father was arrested, I thought he was outside. I thought he was getting rained on and, you know, wind and I just could not conceive of. So, you know, the words you just repeated back to me that I said are, it's so important for me to explain that because children impacted by violence and parental incarceration can't conceive some of these things, you know, which is so, and, you know, I've sensed work with other children of prisoners. And I tell a story of a, a child who had drawn a picture of what appeared to be ninjas. And the teacher was like, he's drawing ninjas. He said ninjas were in his home. And we came to find out that the child was describing a SWAT team. And the child had been playing video games. SWAT team comes in his home and he's knocked over on the floor. And then parent is dragged out by these people who look like ninjas, right? So. I think something unique about my experience is we have such an appetite for true crime in this country, but no one is open to hearing it from a child's lens. And um, the vast majority of prisoners have children. The vast majority of violent offenders have children. And I think people just cannot conceive of this from a child's lens. While the trial was going on and it turned into the circus that it turned into, um, eventually it ended and they were locked up. When I was 18, the trials went on, the trials and, and the appeals went on from the time I was eight till I was 19. That's a long time. How much of you did you try to isolate from it? You know, I had a older male relative at age nine, right after this happened, tell me, don't ever tell anyone, no one's going to marry you. And my father's parents um, started telling people I was their niece instead of their granddaughter during my visits. So between the ages of nine and 22, I told next to no one. How much of the pie chart that is you in your own psyche, your private psyche, how much real estate did all of that take up in you? So a couple things. Complex PTSD is quite different than PTSD, right? So um, the condition I have actually rewired the way my brain works, right? So my disability is, is part of who I am. And my identity is very much who I am. And I very much probably from the age of 10 to the age of 40 was driven by almost revenge. Like every single person who uh, stigmatized me and shamed me and said, you're not going to amount to anything or assumed that I would fall apart. I just wanted to show them all. But most of the individuals who were so cruel and unkind and and so on are gone. 
And so why am I still functioning? Like I'll show them, you know, and that's not what has driven me in every area, right? Like, you know, I serve in suicide prevention because I'm a survivor and I believe that research-based help and authentic hope can prevent suicide. So, you know, my work is not, but some of the other things, you know, you know, some of these milestones that I would try to pass to appear successful, you know. And so right now I'm really, really working on letting go of that. When you think of your father now, what do you think about him? I have a restraining order against him. My last message um, I received from him was via one of his fans wearing a ski mask. And in the letter, he stated, my bitch closeted lesbian daughter wouldn't give me grandchildren out of spite. It's interesting because I was born infertile. (laughs) And that is the most painful aspect of my life. I also reach some roadblocks in adopting. And so it's just further evidences to me that his cruelty knows no bounds and his psychopathy is so vast that he can discover how to get to me even from where he is because that's possibly the only thing he could have said that would have hurt me was to bring out my my infertility. That was Dr. Jen Carson. She's a mental health advocate and public speaker. And if you're struggling with emotional distress, call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. When we get back, how does Jen view her father now? I believe that evil exists. And I believe if released, he would, you know, kill again. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This episode may not be suitable for children. Today, we're hearing the story of Dr. Jen Carson. She was nine years old when she learned that her father, Michael Bear Carson, and her stepmother, Susan Carson, were serial killers. They were later convicted of three homicides, but they may have been connected to as many as a dozen deaths. Before the break, Jen mentioned her father's fans. 
Uh, what? So the average person that consumes true crime documentaries are typically adult women. And there's been a lot of think pieces that we know that 98% of rapists and murderers are men and women are studying the predator. So the average true crime consumers is actually quite kind. They're, they're interested in understanding violence and violence prevention. And I would say about half of the community is actually really justice oriented of also wanting to understand these issues around the injustice around these kind of like celebrity white offenders like my father and then, you know, people of color languishing in prison for next to nothing or whatever, you know, so I, the community is generally kind. I always say there's a big difference between a, a, a true crime fan who's generally kind of kind and thoughtful and a serial killer fan and serial killer fans are just Looney Tunes and sick and twisted and buying locks of hair, you know, of you know, Charles Manson and collecting John Wayne Gacy's paintings and whatever, and um, and dealing in what we call murderbilia. There's a, a museum that has, I think my father's like poetry and drawings on, you know, on display and just really, really sick stuff. There's somewhat, there's a content producer right now that records my father and then puts them into TikToks. There's um, serial killer coloring books and trading cards and video games. And so this trade is is very dark and very sick. And these people scare the crap out of me. And I, you know, I got a 17-page handwritten letter from one of them. They're very scary. If the death penalty had been on the table for him, is that what you would have wanted? I think that in my journey of healing from trauma, I had really black and white thinking early on. So I think like if you had asked me this at 19 or perhaps even 29, before I was in recovery from my own mental illness and before I was in a place of recovery with my trauma, nuance didn't exist for me. I didn't, I never, I didn't see gray. And so if you'd asked me then, I would have said, I wish he had gotten the death penalty for finality for the victims and for myself and that it would just be over. And it was almost like I couldn't think beyond my own self or my own experience. And when I entered long-term recovery, my mind began to expand. And so I could have those thoughts about things like the death penalty separate from self, right? So then as I began reading and realizing that the death penalty was used disproportionately for people of color, disabled folks, queer folks, and so on, then I started to kind of examine my own ethical beliefs, you know, not so centered in fight or flight. I am and now and have been for 20 years opposed to the death penalty in all cases. And so today I would say that I don't believe that he should receive the death penalty or anyone should receive the death penalty. I also believe that we need to engage in prison reform so that incarceration is not as common. But I do believe that pedophiles, serial killers, human predators that are hunting on other humans and making us unsafe that those individuals 
need to be incarcerated to keep themselves safe, to keep others safe, to keep society safe. So I wish that he had been given life without the opportunity of parole. He has expressed that he feels no guilt for what he's done. He recently said on a recording with a fan that was placed on TikTok that he doesn't want to be called a serial killer. He wants to be called an assassin. And he was laughing and joking about his victims who were just really precious, innocent lives. So we're not safe if he's released. He's not safe if he's released. That's where he needs to be. But I know I am am and have been for 20 years fully opposed to the death penalty in all cases. Why are you outspoken about what's happened to you? There was an expectation that I was supposed to change my name. I was supposed to very much lay low and get married and be a florist. I don't know. But I wasn't willing to do it. I go back and forth with people like, why didn't you change your last name? A couple of things. My father's father was who initially the first person I knew who had the name was incredible. He's, you know, he's just an incredible person. My father's parents were very incredible individuals and many people had the name before them. I mean, he doesn't own this name, right? So why should I change my name? You know, why should I vanish? Why, why should I have an alias? I mean, I'm supposed to go into witness protection. Why? I didn't, I didn't kill anyone. Like, why do I need to do any of those things? I, I didn't do anything. Plus, I already hid a number of years. No one else has ever had to live in hiding the way I did for a number of years. I'm not, I'm not doing that again. So I am just trying to live my truth. And the tabloids have stolen my baby pictures. They've manipulated, you know, they're gonna, they're gonna harass me anyway, right? So why not just be who I am, speak my truth, utilize my experience to try to help others, empower myself. I mean, you know, it just, the the hiding thing wasn't going to work for me. I wonder about how you handled the delicate balance between processing your own complex PTSD about your father while also thinking about the pain and trauma experienced by his victims and and their families. I'd I'd like your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, definitely. Directly after I was told about the murders, my mother had a number of newspaper articles and clippings, and I found them. They were in a drawer. I believe I would have been around that same time, nine or 10. And as a small child, I struggled with minor dyslexia, and I remember trying to piece together what I was reading And I remember a B word that I couldn't read, which I now know was bludgeoned. So I saw the articles and I knew very early that he had bashed a young woman over the head with a frying pan, that he had set a young man's body on fire. And I then began having nightmares and some vicarious trauma and dreaming over and over about the three known murders. I would have dreams that it was occurring. I was looking outside a window and I had the power to stop it, but was not stopping it. And then I would have another set of repeated dreams that the mother of the known female victim was crying, holding her photograph. 
when I, I tell my own story, I'm doing so to talk about vicarious trauma and the experience of children offenders and children of prisoners. My experience is in no way near as painful as the victim's families. But my experience is more rooted in shame. And so when I'm speaking, I'm speaking about my experience of shame. And I'm not trying to detour from their loss and pain, which is much greater. When I do tell my story, I'm contacted by individuals who, it's interesting who contacts me. It's individuals who were born the product of a rape or incest, children of pedophiles and rapists, terrorists. Um, You know, I've had um, people contact me who have this kind of secondary shame that they're dealing with. So I try to only speak about my experience to help other people coping with shame. And I in no way want to convey that my pain is anywhere near the pain of the family of homicide victims, which their pain is much greater. I wanted to ask about compassion. Um, your father clearly is mentally ill. Uh, I don't um, No, I'm mentally ill. I have a mood disorder and I have PTSD. And I've coped with decades of suicidality. I live with a mental illness. The vast majority of people who are mentally ill are far more common to be harmed by others than to ever harm anyone. So while my father did have an addiction, that did not lead to his violence. While he did inherit the same mood disorder that I have, that also did not lead to his violence. What I do believe led to his violence was his lack of conscience. You use the word psychopathy a few times. Is that what you believe he has? Yeah, I believe that evil exists. And I believe evil is a state of lacking any empathy or compassion. It's so telling that my father continues to brag about the murders that he has stated very clearly he has no remorse and i believe if released he would you know kill again and i don't know that we know enough about the human mind right now to know how this lightning strikes that an individual is completely devoid of any human empathy and is kind of walking around wearing a human mask or how this level of narcissism occurs because we don't see this in the individual's parent or child always or siblings or what have you. And that, that kind of terrifies people. I think the account of my father and my stepmother scares people because neither experienced childhood trauma. These people were not created. I believe they were born. And that's that's a scary thought for just about anyone. So it, it seems understandable that compassion, forgiveness are off the table. Yeah. Um, for my father? 
That's right. So this is interesting. I have, um, I've started meeting with the world's expert in forgiveness. He's a widely researched the topic. I met with him because I said, my faith orientation tells me to forgive. And I said, are there things that are unforgivable? He and I have been having, we're meeting once a month to have this conversation. And so I, he and I share a faith orientation. I say, am I called to forgive, right? Must forgiveness occur for genocide and and rape and serial homicide. We're having kind of these discussions. And I think some of my concepts were rooted in, I think maybe like almost 12-step programs where forgiveness is your meeting with someone and you're dialoguing with them. And so through these conversations, it's more of a journey to release the anger and the bitterness And you're not doing it for them. You're doing it for a calling and then also for your own wellness, you know? So I think I'm very much trying to work on releasing any hate, anger, and bitterness that I have towards my father. And as I mentioned before, for a long time, I was driven by showing them, you know, And the anger and bitterness and hatred and all these things I felt towards my father and stepmother were somehow driving me very similar to someone who drastically improves their appearance after a breakup. I always equate it to Princess Diana's famous revenge dress, right? This beautiful black dress. And when I see it, I actually think it's quite beautiful because she's been mistreated by an institution and by the press and she's um, holding her head up and saying, I am me, I'm strong. It's actually, it's actually kind of beautiful, but at the time I kind of perceived it that I was living my life to kind of be this walking revenge dress. You know, I will show him, I'll show them, I'll show the world. So it's my hope that five years from now, 10 years from now, I have reached some space of forgiveness. And as a social worker with a doctorate, I would love to say to you, yes, I have forgiven. I have done that. Of course, I want to say that. But I try to live a very honest and authentic life. And it's just going to be a process. And I'm still working on it. We did a whole show about forgiveness. And my theory was no one can agree on what forgiveness is. So I asked my listeners and and friends to talk to me about in one line, how do you define forgiveness? And I had montages of different definitions of forgiveness. And the only way that they all overlapped was the seeking of relief. Some people are like, forgive for yourself. No, forgive for them. Forgive for the community. No, it's a spiritual thing. No, it's a selfish thing. The one that I thought was really interesting was the idea that uh, forgiveness, true forgiveness is when you realize there was nothing to forgive them for, but that doesn't apply to this. You know what? If someone broke your heart and you you got stronger out of it, okay. But that there's that that doesn't doesn't translate to this. Yeah, that's moving on. I'm exploring things like genocide, rape, homicide. No, so for me, it's really uh, for me, it's almost like something being really bitter in your mouth, and you're gonna spit it out. You know, you're gonna release this bitterness, right? And 
you know, I think we have similar discussions about what is love, what is wisdom, you know, these types of things. And so because I'm an intellectual person and I, I see some kind of intellectual pursuits, I think quite clearly, like I feel like um, I see wisdom as very Socratic and it being a journey and so on. And so I'm kind of applying that to this forgiveness that it is going to be a journey. And as a Gen Xer, I'll just quote the Indigo Girls, you know, I'm just trying to get closer to fine, right? You know, so reaching fine or okay may not be possible in this lifetime for someone like me, (laughs) but maybe I'm going to get closer to fine. But I think if I can get to a space where I'm not trying to show him or the critics or whoever, where I'm kind of making choices based on what sustains me and or what have you, I I think that that's going to be what gets me a little bit closer. That was Dr. Jen Carson. Her father, Michael Bear Carson, and a second wife, Susan Carson, were suspected of numerous murders and convicted of killing three people. If you're struggling with emotional distress, call or text the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. After the break... How did all that she went through contribute to who she is now? It's no accident that I work in suicide hotline management, right? You know, I function really, really well in a crisis space. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. In the U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This episode may not be suitable for children. When we left off with Dr. Jen Carson, we were talking about forgiveness and her father, serial killer Michael Bear Carson. Let's get back to our conversation. What does talking about this with me, with anybody, do to or for you? Even just talking with me, like, is your body tense? Is your stomach tight? Is this just another day? You've, you've talked about this a thousand freaking times and doesn't affect you at all. Like what's <laughs> happening right now with you? Yeah. I mean, a couple things is, you know, when it's no accident that I work in suicide hotline management, right? You know, I function really, really well in a crisis space. You know, if you were to be in a crisis, you would want me in the room. And so this is comfortable for me. And 
a lot of people with both the kind of atypical mood disorder I have in NCPTSD talk about how we can handle these major crises and then minor inconveniences just crush us to bits and we flip out. And so I have to acknowledge that for good or ill, that's where I function, you know, is, is that is my comfort zone is crisis. Right. But every time I kind of speak my truth or tell my story, I'm refusing to live in secret. I'm refusing to be ashamed of who I am and where, how I got here, you know, now are there times that my rough exterior can be shattered and so on. I had a circumstance where I was in an interview and the individual interviewing me played a segment of my father talking and I lost it because I had not heard his voice. I think, you know, just now when you were and I were talking about my father's recent, you know, verbal abuse of me through his fans, that hurts. That's hard. And then honestly, part of what gets me to speak out is I'm fully aware that reminding individuals how remorseless my father and stepmother are will prevent their parole. And so that that drives me as well. And I had the opportunity to meet the victim's parents and siblings. And one of the victim's fathers was the kindest human I've encountered in this life. And for him, I, I, I want to keep these people incarcerated. If you could say something to your father and he couldn't say anything back, what would you say to him? Would you say anything to him? A narcissist loves attention, and I give him silence, and it drives him insane, and I need to work on the forgiveness thing, but I just refuse to feed and water a narcissist, so no, I'm not going to say a thing to him. He doesn't deserve my thoughts, so I'm not going to feed or water a monster, so no. I wouldn't say anything. I give him silence. If you could go back in time to that little girl on the curb who just heard the news from her mom, tell her something, what would you tell her? Get help. So, you know, people ask me, when did you enter the field of suicide prevention? I say, age nine, I was preventing my own suicide. I would have gone and got help. So when my mother informed me and then these awful older adults said such nasty things to me and kind of convinced me that I had to keep a secret or what have you, I wish I had gone to the school nurse or somebody at school and said, I need help. And because my extraordinary stepfather who came into my life very soon after the arrest and who I attribute to all of my success and wellness. 
he went to a member of the clergy and was like, my new daughter is, is, is very sad and she's in a lot of trouble. What should I do? And the clergy said, take her to a doctor, take her to see, you know, a counselor, you know, see if you can get her to go on walks. And he just kind of wrote this list and kind of, you know, started to get me some help. So I started getting mental health help when I was about 13, but I was in a suicidal crisis from nine to 13, most, most dangerously when I was nine and 10 triggered by some of these vile things that some, um, the older relatives had said to me, but if I were to go back, I would scream in her ear, get help, go talk to any grown up who listen and get help. Are you in touch at all with other children of serial killers? Uh, yes, I have talked to several briefly, but they're in different parts of their journey. You know, right. you had mentioned earlier about how they had a before and after. Yeah, I'm 40 years in. I've had conversations with other people who have the secondary shame of a violent family member, and that could be war crimes, sexual assault, pedophilia, all the things. And I did the math once. I was more likely to be struck by lightning than be the child of a serial killer. Last I was told, I think there's 30 living serial killers incarcerated right now or something like that. I mean, this is a very weird, rare experience that sickly fascinates the public, but violence is not rare. 99% of my experience is not different than other people who've experienced trauma, have dealt with violence or vicarious trauma or some of the things, the shame or individuals who have dealt with um, suicidal thoughts. Um, we know that one in 20 people are suffering and are wishing they're they're not alive right now today. And suicide is the 10th leading cause of death. And so, you know, if you're coping with suicidal thoughts, get help. And if you don't have readily available help from a doctor, from a therapist, um, from another trained helper, call 988-247, or you can text 988. Help is always available. And if you're dealing with another type of mental health condition, you know, I deal with a mood disorder and PTSD, and I would say address it like you would address a physical illness get help and advocate for yourself. This is what I know. Suffering is part of life. None of us will get out of this life without suffering. My experience may sound very melodramatic, but it's just an early extra dose of suffering at the beginning. And this is what I know. Hope can be restored and help works. And I think those are two powerful things to know. You've talked about your relationship with your mother and your stepfather as being wonderful and a big part of maybe how you got to where you are now to have that support. I would love to hear what your relationship was like with them now. Today, my relationship with Mama Lynn and Daddy Mike, my uh, mother and stepfather, is absolutely incredible. 
you know, I take care of them. I'm a registered Veterans Affairs caregiver for my stepfather. His medical conditions are due to Agent Orange that occurred during the Vietnam War. Uh, My stepfather was an Army medic who received a Bronze Star for Valor. He carried uh, wounded men under fire. We joke that he's the Mexican-American Captain America. You know, he's just so incredible. Mike Gonzalez, my stepfather. And what the Vasquez Gonzalez family did to embrace me with love and healing when they adopted me into the family at age nine is just breathtaking. It makes me sad that so much of my story is about my birth father when in actuality, my life is all about this incredible Mexican-American step family that raised me. And my stepfather, when he came into my life, he knew that my birth family were Ashkenazi. And so he like got a book on Hanukkah. So my Mexican-American stepfather makes like the most perfect latkes and he can make matzo balls and whatever because he wanted to make sure that every Hanukkah was special. And then it's so funny because, you know, he did his DNA. He came back that he is Ashkenazi and Sephardic himself, partially. So... Yeah, exactly. And so now that makes his Hanukkahs and, you know, the high holidays more precious or whatever. So it's just like, I know we're here today to talk about my violent birth father, but why do I have a doctorate? Why am I a suicide hotline manager? Why did I just get appointed as our local library commissioner? Because of the Vasquez Gonzalez family that raised me. That's why. (laughs) That's why. Jen Carson, thank you so much for talking with me. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for what you do. And we don't have enough authentic conversations in this life. And I think that we need to do so more often. So I would say that we need to listen to each other more and it can help us understand others and ourselves. One final note, as part of the early parole program in the state of California, Michael Bear Carson will be eligible for parole in 2030. That's the same program that just this past July set free Leslie Van Houten of the Manson murders. Audacious is always lovingly produced by Jessica Severin Martinez, Khalil Rahman, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. I'd mentioned that we had done a show about forgiveness. You can find that episode and all the rest of our one-of-a-kind conversations at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your thoughts on Facebook and Instagram at Kion Wolf, or you can send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.